This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Lyons, Naperville, Illinois. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 9. The Birds. The songs of the Yosemite winds and waterfalls are delightfully enriched with birdsong, especially in the nesting time of spring and early summer. The most familiar and best known of all is the common robin, who may be seen every day hopping about briskly on the meadows and uttering his cheery enlivening call. The black-headed grosbeck, too, is here, with the bullock oriole, the western tanager, brown song sparrow, hermit thrush, the purple finch, a fine singer, with head and throat of a rose red, rosy red hue, several species of warblers and vireos, kinglets, flycatchers, etc. But the most wonderful singer of all the birds is the water ousel that dives into foaming rapids and feeds at the bottom, holding on in a wonderful way, living a charmed life. Several species of hummingbirds are always to be seen darting and buzzing among the showy flowers. The little red-bellied nuthatches, the chickadees, the little brown creepers, threading the furrows of the bark of the pines, searching for food in the crevices. The large Stellar's jay makes merry in the pine tops. Flocks of beautiful green swallows swim over the streams, and the noisy Clark's crow may oftentimes be seen on the highest points around the valley and in the deep woods behind the walls beyond the walls you may frequently hear and see the ducky grouse and the pileated woodpecker or woodcock almost as large as a pigeon the junco or snowbird builds its nest on the floor of the valley among the ferns several species of sparrow are common and the beautiful lazuli bunting a common bird in the underbrush flitting about among the azalea and sionathus bushes and enlivening the groves with his brilliant color and on gravelly bars the spotted sandpiper is sometimes seen many woodpeckers dwell in the valley the familiar flicker the harris woodpecker and the species which so busily stores up acorns in the thick bark of the yellow pines the short cold days of winter are also sweetened with the music and hopeful chatter of a considerable number of birds. No cheerier choir ever sang in snow. First and best of all is the water ousel, a dainty, dusky little bird about the size of a robin that sings in sweet fluty song all winter and all summer in storms and calms, sunshine and shadow, haunting the rapids and waterfalls with marvelous constancy, building his nest in the cleft of a rock bathed in spray. He is not web-footed, yet he dives fearlessly into the foaming rapids, seeming to take the greater delight the more boisterous the stream, 
always as cheerful and calm as any linnet in a grove. All his gestures as he flits about amid the loud uproar of the falls bespeak the utmost simplicity and confidence. Bird and stream, one and inseparable. What a pair! Yet they are well related. A finer bloom than the foam bell in an eddying pool is this little bird. We may miss the meaning of the loud-resounding torrent, but the flute-like voice of the bird, only love, is in it. A few robins, belated on their way down from the upper meadows, linger in the valley and make out to spend the winter in comparative comfort, feeding on the mistletoe berries that grow on the oaks. In the depths of the great forest, on the high meadows, in the severest altitudes, they seem as much at home as in the fields and orchids about the busy habitations of man. Ascending the Sierra as the snow melts, following the green footsteps of spring, until in July or August the highest glacier meadows are reached on the summit of the range. Then after the short summer is over and their work in cheering and sweetening these lofty wilds is done, they gradually make their way down again in accord with the weather, keeping below the snowstorms, lingering here and there to feed on huckleberries and frost-nipped wild cherries growing on the upper slopes, thence down to the vineyards and orchids of the lowland to spend the winter, entering the gardens of the great towns, as well as parks and fields where the blessed wanderers are too often slaughtered for food. Surely a bad use to put so fine a musician to. Better make stove wood of pianos to feed the kitchen fire. The kingfisher winters in the valley, and the flicker, and of course the carpenter woodpecker, that lays up large stores of acorns in the bark of trees, wrens also, with a few brown and gray linnets, and flocks of the arctic bluebird, making lively pictures among the snow-laden mistletoe bushes. Flocks of pigeons are often seen, and about six species of ducks, as the river is never wholly frozen over. Among these are the mallard, and the beautiful wood-duck, now less common on account of being so often shot at. Flocks of wandering geese used to visit the valley in March and April, and perhaps do so still, driven down by hunger or stress of weather while on their way across the range. When pursued by the hunters, I have frequently seen them try to fly over the walls of Lee Valley until tired out and compelled to re-alight. Yosemite magnitudes seem to be as deceptive to geese as to men, for after circling to a considerable height and forming regular harrow-shaped ranks, they would suddenly find themselves in danger of being dashed against the face of the cliff, much nearer the bottom than the top. Then turning in confusion, with loud screams, they would try again and again until exhausted and compelled to descend. I have occasionally observed large flocks on their travels crossing the summit of the range at a height of 12,000 to 13,000 feet above the level of the sea, 
and even in so rare an atmosphere as this they seem to be sustaining themselves without extra effort. Strong, however, as they are of wind and wing, they cannot fly over Yosemite walls, starting from the bottom. A pair of golden eagles have lived in the valley ever since I first visited it, hunting all winter along the northern cliffs and down the river canyon. Their nest is on a ledge of the cliff over which pours the Nevada Fall. Perched on the top of a dead spar, they were always interested observers of the geese when they were being shot at. I once noticed one of the geese compelled to leave the flock on account of being sorely wounded, although it still, still seemed to fly pretty well. Immediately the eagles pursued it, and no doubt struck it down, although I did not see the result of the hunt. Anyhow, it flew past me up the valley, closely pursued. One wild stormy winter morning, after five feet of snow had fallen on the floor of the valley, and the flying flakes driven by a strong wind still thickened the air, making darkness like the approach of night, I sallied forth to see what I might learn and enjoy. It was impossible to go very far without the aid of snowshoes, but I found no great difficulty in making my way to a part of the river where one of my oozles lived. I found him at home busy about his breakfast, apparently unaware of anything uncomfortable in the weather. Presently he flew out to a stone against which the icy current was beating, and turning his back to the wind, sang as delightfully as a lark in springtime. After spending an hour or two with my favorite, I made my way across the valley, boring and wallowing through the loose snow, to learn as much as possible about the way the other birds were spending their time. In winter one can always find them because they are then restricted to the north side of the valley, especially the Indian Canyon groves, which from their peculiar exposure are the warmest. I found most of the robins cowering on the lee side of the larger branches of the trees, where the snow could not fall on them, while two or three of the most venturesome were making desperate efforts to get at the mistletoe berries by clinging to the underside of the snow-crowned masses, back downward, something like woodpeckers. Every now and then some of the loose snow was dislodged and sifted down on the hungry birds, sending them screaming back to their companions in the grove, shivering and muttering like cold, hungry children. Some of the sparrows were busy scratching and pecking at the feet of the larger trees where the snow had been shed off, gleaning seeds and benumbed insects, joined now and then by a robin weary of his unsuccessful efforts to get at the snow-covered mistletoe berries. The brave woodpeckers were clinging to the snowless sides of the larger boles and overarching branches of the camp trees, making short flights from side to side of the grove, pecking now and then at the acorns they had stored in the bark, and chattering aimlessly as if unable to keep still, evidently putting in the time in a very dull way. 
the hardy nut-hatches were threading the open furrows of the barks in their usual industrious manner and uttering their quaint notes giving no evidence of distress the stellar's jays were of course making more noise and stir than all the other birds combined ever coming and going with loud bluster screaming as if each had a lump of melting sludge in his throat and taking good care to improve every opportunity afforded by the darkness and confusion of the storm to steal from the acorn stores to steal from the acorn stores of the woodpeckers one of the golden eagles made an impressive picture as he stood bolt upright on the top of a tall pine stump braving the storm with his back to the wind and a tuft of, tuft of snow piled on his broad shoulders a monument of passive endurance thus every storm-bound bird seemed more or less uncomfortable if not in distress the storm was reflected in every gesture and not one cheerful note not to say song came from a single bill their cowering joyless endurance offered striking contrasts to the spontaneous irrepressible gladness of the oozel who could no more help giving out sweet song than a rose sweet fragrance he must sing though the heavens fall End of chapter 9